Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to another edition of SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. Today on the show, we're going to be discussing a preseason camp, which is underway this week throughout the SEC, and debate which coach in the conference might face the toughest challenge throughout the preseason, getting his team ready for the season. Also going to ask John whether George's foothold in the SEC is as strong as uh, as is perceived, and then we're going to close with a discussion about the ideal coach's spouse, which I know you can't wait to get into, John, but uh, first, your favorite time of the year, preseason camp. I can see you. you're just sort of bubbling with excitement. Yeah, the stories just keep rolling in. You could go back and get coaches' comments from every preseason and take any team, and they're all pretty much the same. Everybody's better, uh, bigger, stronger, faster. Um, the strength coach has just done an amazing job. He's pushed the team beyond all limits. Uh, never had a strength coach like whoever the coach is now. And uh, so big things are coming. I did. You know, normally, you don't see very many interesting quotes in preseason camp, but I did read one from uh, Missouri coach Eli slash Aliyah Drinkwitz this week. He was asked about his quarterback competition, which is three deep and includes um, Brady Cook and Mississippi State transfer Jack Abraham as sort of the headliners, and and was asked about the idea of a two quarterback competition and or two quarterback system. And Drinkwitz said, "quote." It's not a happiness camp, and it's not a Club Med. I thought that was just a great reference to Club Med. Of course, the old-timey Caribbean resorts that have been around for like 70 years. They were one of the uh, the first like Caribbean resorts to hit the scene. And now if you go to a Club Med, they're, uh, and they say they're a little cheaper, maybe a little older. But, boy, they're always having a good time at those Club Meds. So I thought that was, that was a pretty good. In terms of a preseason quote competition, Drinkwitz may be, may be ahead of the pack here. He is, and he's also demonstrated his musical talents uh, based on a conversation on air I heard with him and Paul Feinbaum of the SEC Network. He can he can hit you with a little guitar if he needs to. We're going to get into some more of Drinkwitz's comments in the final uh, final segment of the show, but uh, first, as we as we take a look at, at preseason underway here, John, we got a couple new coaches in the SEC in Brian Kelly at LSU. Billy Napier at Florida. We also have a coach who I think um, I think undeniably enters the season on at, at the very least the warm seat and it's probably it's probably at least mildly hot and, and Brian Harson it could get a lot hotter uh, in a hurry depending on how the season starts. So I'm gonna pose this question and maybe you go for one of those three guys, maybe you surprise me and go somewhere in a different direction. But which coach in the SEC 
do you think faces the toughest challenge, the toughest coaching job, the biggest chore, whatever you want to call it, here throughout the preseason, you know, getting their their team ready for a September opener? Well, you've already alluded to Brian Harson, and I don't want to keep beating him up. We all know he's in a precarious situation. So I yeah, he's got a tough challenge. And and you could say everybody has a tough challenge. Um and we're not necessarily by a challenge. We don't necessarily mean this guy's doomed to failure. I we don't? To... Speak for yourself, John, because oh, I wrote okay. in a column well, uh, a couple of weeks ago that Brian Harson, I'd be surprised if he's Auburn's coach next year. But okay. as well, Brian Harson said at Media Days, a lot of folks thought he'd, they were are surprised that he's the coach this summer. So fair point. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking at this a little differently from a challenge just a lot of things to do uh, this preseason. I'm going to pick Lane Kiffin, who has proved himself to be a more than competent head coach, 10 wins last year at Ole Miss. Why I think this preseason camp is challenging for him, for one, he's got to pick a starting quarterback. That's, That's always an issue. We like to call it a quarterback controversy. I love quarterback controversies. I wake up in the morning hoping, oh, gosh, I hope there'll be some more quarterback controversies today. Um, like South Carolina had last year when it plucked a, its quarterback from a graduate assistant coach's row in one of their the Gamecocks four starters last year. But you look at it, so Kiffin is, has a great tracker with quarterbacks. So you take its it's Luke Altmaier, isn't it? Is am I getting the name right on his quarterback, or have I got yeah, that wrong? Yeah, Luke Altmaier Luke was the Malcolm. backup to Matt Corral last Matt season. Corral. Yeah, so and he's in the competition with, with of course, Jackson Dart, Jackson the Dart transfer. And, but I don't think they've. I mean, you would think that Jackson Dart would be the guy, but I wasn't repelled by what Altmaier did in the Sugar Bowl when he had to come in against a great def- defense. Had to come in for. Matt Corral, who has received an inordinate amount of love on this podcast consistently, and we will continue to throw love his way as he goes into the NFL with Carolina Panthers. But I just think, so that's an important decision right away. But also, you look at all the different players he's brought in for the second year in a row in the transfer board, from the transfer portal, two running backs, Ulysses Bentley and Zach Evans both could be really good running backs. A tight end from Southern Cal, not just Jackson Dart, but a tight end from Southern Cal. Michael Trigg, who apparently is a one of those hybrid guys, can catch, run, all that good stuff in, in, in a tight end's role. So there's a lot of stuff to do there with Kiffin. We know his reputation for offense. I just think he's got to uh, – He's got to put all these parts together, and if he does it in the right way, I think Ole Miss could be really good. He did it last year, and if he can do it two years in a row, kudos to him. Yeah, that's a good pick, and and I'm glad you did not take the low-hanging fruit that I served you up there with either Brian Harson or the or the first-year coaches made it made it more interesting. And I think that's um, that's a good point with all the transfers that Ole Miss has on board. And, and Lane Kiffin made the comment to me a, a couple months ago about how, you know, when you add all these transfers, looks great on paper. And yes, on paper, he's excited about it because of what these guys did at their past schools, what he expects them to do at Ole Miss. But he mentioned, you know, the chemistry and how they gel together in the locker room is the one thing 
you just really can't predict whenever you hit the portal as hard as as he has. Now, I probably fall a little bit less to that extent. I, I think a lot of times, you know, coaches and players always talk about chemistry. And I just look at things like, just, just give me the best players possible and I'll, I'll roll out there with that team. If, it, if it's an inferior team with great chemistry or a very talented team with okay chemistry, I'll take the very talented team with, with okay chemistry any day of the week. But that's not to say that his overall point doesn't have merit. And certainly I realize that even though this isn't like synchronized diving or something, uh, team chemistry does have some component in, in your success throughout a season. Blake, have you ever heard of a team in preseason having bad team chemistry? Is that is that ever occurred? The only time you ever hear about bad team chemistry is the preseason when they're talking about the previous year. You know, if you went like five and seven in the previous season, then usually that usually come up comes up in spring practice. They don't even wait till August camp. In spring practice, you hear lots about like oh, well, we had bad team chemistry last yeah. year. It's going to be better this year. You never hear about it during the season, though. It's it's always no, one it's, of those April storylines. It's uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of me first guys last year. But this year, what they've already experienced even in spring is guys are close-knit. No, no clicks on this team. Everybody's kind of one big happy family. A kumbaya club med. Here we go. It's just uh, it's just a wonderful euphoric attitude hovering over the program. Everybody loves everybody else, and yeah, unlike last season when they had all these me first guys and and guys who frankly really didn't care. And it would be interesting to check the quotes from this preseason or even the spring, and then take the same guys after the upcoming season and see if some of those uh, guys that love one another and play so hard for one another and are so close knit suddenly become me first guys. What's the longest you've ever gone, John, for using a quote in a column? Like, you know, if somebody told you something a couple months ago and it's still, still relevant, I have no issue sliding that into a, a column, you know, that quote, have you ever, you know, been writing about one preseason and you just recycled a quote from, the year prior, because you're like, eh, you know, it's pretty sounds good, and they're saying the same type of things this year. He just said it a little better a year ago. Yeah, I've actually done columns where I uh, refer to, and I've done that at SE Media Days. What the people said the previous Media Days, because you could, they kind of fit any year. Uh, again, there's so much optimism just just rolling across the practice field right now. But I kind of we kind of got off on a tangent here, and I blame myself for that. So, who are, who do you think faces the toughest challenge? Are you going to take the low hanging fruit as you alluded to? Oh, I absolutely am. Okay, and, good and, for you. I think Florida fans made it a little easy for me to to go in that direction because, as you recall, John, it was just a couple months ago that there was a certain segment of the Gator fan base that was already feeling a little uneasy about the Billy Napier tenure. They didn't think, you know, enough commitments were rolling in yet. Recruit weren't, weren't ranked as high as in the recruiting rankings uh, as where some of the Gator faithful thought they should be. And I thought, Oh my, <laughs> you know, look at this challenge Billy Napier has in front of him. It's, it's May and uh, in the May of a, of a first year coach, 
and and already the the natives are are getting restless. But you know, moving past the recruiting, which by the way, Florida has has taken a, a hop, skip, and a jump forward in those recruiting rankings, and lo and behold, they have like fourteen four star commitments right now, and they're in the top fifteen of the recruiting rankings. So everybody just calm down over the summer recruiting rankings, where you're ranked in, in spring and summer is not necessarily where you're going to be in, in December. So give the man just a little bit of a break there, but you know, even leaving that behind, John, you mentioned quarterback competition at Ole Miss, which fair point, but at Florida, I think there's just this assumption that Anthony Richardson is going to be the star of the 2022 season throughout the Southeastern conference. I mean, you, you look at guys getting a lot of hype throughout the country and Anthony Richardson is, is near the top of the list. And look, I mean, I think you and I get that. We were, we were saying throughout last season that, you know, when Richardson was healthy, Dan Mullen needed to get him on the field more. And we were both impressed by his dual threat abilities, but still at the end of the day, it's a guy that completed 38 passes last year. He was a backup quarterback, came in for, you know, a series here, a series there, came in as a running threat. Uh, he attempted 64 passes. He threw five interceptions. He's an unpolished product. So I think despite all the hype, Billy Napier has a chore in, in getting Anthony Richardson uh, where he needs to be. And along with that, I think when you look at what was left in the cupboard at Florida as compared to LSU, where you have another first-year coach, I think the situation at Florida was a little bleaker in terms of overall talent, certainly in terms of depth. I think Billy Napier addressed that okay through the transfer portal. Didn't do maybe as strong as Brian Kelly did, uh, but did pick up some some nice pieces, including Osiris Torrance, who will probably be a starter on their offensive line. He followed Billy Napier from Louisiana Lafayette, I thought was was maybe one of the most important additions. But overall, I think Billy Napier faces a chore. And, you know, not only do you have the normal stuff of a first year coach of, you know, acclimating yourself to uh, to your new boosters, to your new administration that you're working with, all this stuff. And, and but you're also getting your system in. Players are adjusting to you. You're trying to get recruiting back on track. Uh, and oh, by the way, already a portion of your fan base is, is frustrated with you, and you haven't even kicked off your first season yet in Florida. Also, you have to consider the fact that he's hired more, probably hired more people, and I'm talking about off-the-field roles, periphery staff members, than anybody in SEC history. I mean, he's just got an army of associates, assistants, whatever. We talked about this before. I wonder if there's any way that he could he could match a name with a job right now. If you ask him to name, to write down, you'd have to pay him a lot of money to do that because his his time is valuable. But if you paid him, said, Billy, here's another million dollars for your first season. If you can list all the people you hired and for what job, do you think he could do that? I don't know. He but, might surprise you, John. I've said before about the meticulous and detailed nature of Billy Napier that I noticed when visiting with him when he was at Louisiana Lafayette. I was working on a story. He has all these binders that he keeps at the ready, John. Uh-huh. And he can. I mean, these things are are thick. They're not like the little slim binders you took into your biology class. I mean, these are these are more for your uh, uh, your master's level coursework. They're they're a couple inches thick at least. And he's got those right by his desk. 
and he can pull them out and, and consult them at any time. So he might not, you know, just off the cuff be able to reference who it is on his staff. But if you said, you know, if you gave him a minute to consult that binder and you say, well, now, wait a second. I know exactly who you're talking about. So don't don't sell the man short here. Well, maybe I did sell him short. And, and I want to get back to Anthony Richardson for a second, because honestly, after the first two weeks of the season last year, if you if you asked me what player would you most like to see next Saturday? I would have said Anthony Richardson. I mean, the guy's 6'4", 6'5", weighs about 240, runs like a 400-meter guy, made some spectacular throws. Uh, He was a highlight waiting to happen. And I just thought, boy, wait till he gets in there for an entire game. And then he just kind of fizzled out in the second half of the season. And admittedly, I had Heisman Trophy expectations for his future just based on a few highlight plays so it was impossible to live up to those expectations but the fact is dan mullen although speaking of fizzled out he fizzled out in rare fashion last year but what was the best thing dan mullen did as a college coach you'd have to say quarterback play he was regarded it always has been kind of as a quarterback guru and I know, Lee, I know he only had a year or so to work with Anthony Richardson, but I thought that might have expedited Anthony Richardson's progress. I just didn't see that over the course of the season. So to think Anthony Richardson is going to save this offense, as much as I like watching him in those highlight plays, I'm not sure. Which yeah. quarterback, John, do you think – that's getting a lot of preseason hype. Anthony Richardson versus Will Levis. I mean, the, the the hype train for for Will Levis. I mean, it left the station like the day after the NFL draft ended, and somebody in their dad's basement had Will Levis like number one in his mock draft on his Blogspot site. You know, for twenty twenty three. As soon as that went up, it's like boom. It, it's one of those uh, bullet trains they got over in Europe. That that hype train is. Is just soaring at like 400 miles an hour. So you got Will Levis, and then you got the aforementioned Anthony Richardson. Which one do you think is more in danger of being overhyped? Because when it comes to Levis, I know we both like his arm, but I mentioned Anthony Richardson's interception count in a small sample size last year. Will Levis led the conference last year in interception. So good arm, but he's got to improve as a, as a decision maker. Which one do you think is possibly being overhyped more. I would say Anthony Richardson. Will Levis, and again, I like the way he plays, but there's a concern for me with both of those players. Injuries. Anthony Richardson, he has a history of injuries, and I just don't know how he will hold up, particularly in an offense like Napier prefers to run, where his quarterback is very involved in the running game. You're not expected to just scramble and make an occasional play. You're part of that running game, and I don't know how well he'll do with that in terms of durability. That's a question that he'll have to answer over the course of the season. Will Levis got a little Tim Tebow in him. He sees a linebacker, then he makes a beeline for him because he wants to run over him, and that endears him, him to teammates who love quarterbacks that want to run over linebackers. He's a big, strong guy, strong arm. He's really mobile for his size, and he's got all these physical tools. But I could see him getting hurt. And 
Bo Allen just elected to transfer. Great timing. I'm out of here, guys. Love Kentucky. I'll always be a Wildcat, but not this season. So there's no real backup. The veteran backup quarterback is is an endangered species that is is rapidly approaching extinction. John, let's change gears here because um, there's a question I was thinking about recently, and and I'm wondering if you're on the same page as me or feel free to call me an idiot, although I know you have more decorum than that and wouldn't stoop to that level. But No, I, was... I, I only do that with coaches. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Not colleagues, yeah. I was thinking recently, John, when I was considering the, the SEC's preseason media poll here, of course you had Alabama picked to win the West. You had Georgia picked to win the East. No surprises there. I would have done the same. You would have done the same. Anybody with half a brain uh, would have probably picked Alabama to win the West and Georgia to win the East. However, we know that once Texas and Oklahoma join the conference, the SEC is planning on dumping divisions and going to a one big happy family formula where you know, you play somewhere between one to three annual rivals, and otherwise you got this rotating schedule within one cohesive standings. So it made me think, if divisions were dumped today, and even before Texas and Oklahoma join, the SEC just competed in one 14-team standings, would it be as much of an accepted prediction that Georgia would make the SEC championship this season? Because it is now. As I said, everybody accepts it's it's probably going to be Alabama and Georgia and Atlanta. But how much of that is built around the fact that Georgia is in the weaker East and is just a runaway favorite in that division? Whereas if you had everybody in the same conference, would they be as much of a favorite? Would it be as much accepted that Georgia would be in Atlanta this year? I don't think it would be as accepted, but I still think Georgia would, would be... the. The consensus would be, yes, Georgia will play for the SEC championship again, but it would be a closer call. I think the problem with that is nobody knows exactly who's going to be the second-place team in the West. It's not a clear-cut deal. I think it will be Texas A&M, but Arkansas, you show Arkansas a lot of love, and I think Arkansas has got very experienced and a talented team. Uh, good team chemistry, as we like to say, as we've emphasized in this podcast. Um, so uh, even even LSU and and I think Ole Miss, if things pan out with uh, that offense and all those transfers, could be a factor. But there's no clear cut number two to me. So because of that, I would just go with Georgia despite all the holes it has to fill, particularly on defense, I would just say Georgia's number two and it will play in the championship game. And another factor in that, let's face it, Kirby Smart is not coaching in anybody's shadow anymore. I mean, he's, he's, I think if you ask anybody what to name the top five coaches in college football, Kirby, Kirby Smart would be among them. And so that's another factor. He's, he's sustained success. So I would still have Georgia. I would still have Georgia in championship game, even if it had to go through some of those more of those West teams. Yeah, I think that's fair. Sort of that process of elimination approach that you spoke of, and you kind of you can poke holes in in every other team in the West after you get behind Alabama, and and so 
yes, even though Georgia has to deal with the fact that they had 15 players drafted, I think by process of elimination and the way they've recruited um, and the talented backups they had last year that are now going to be starters, you're probably right. And I, and I do think Kirby's getting to that point where, much like Nick Saban, doesn't matter how much they lost the year before, you expect to see them you know, near the top of the preseason polls. I mean, the there's so many just eye-catching facets of the Alabama dynasty under Nick Saban. But the one that just grabs me maybe the most, John, is when you look at the preseason AP rankings for Alabama year after year. You have to go back to 2008. That's Saban's second season at Alabama. They were coming off a seven and six year. You have to go back to the 2008 preseason to find an AP poll, preseason AP poll, where Alabama was ranked outside the top five. Every year since then, from 2009 on, they've been a preseason top five team, which when you think about some of the some of the draft classes they've produced, um, it's just sort of remarkable. There, there's never any expectation that there's going to be much drop-off. Um, and as we've been talking about here, I think Georgia is starting to get to that point where, okay, Georgia sent 15 guys to the NFL in the draft. Maybe they won't be as good as, as last year. Maybe that defense you know, won't be one of the greatest of all time again this year, but they're still going to be really good because look at the way they've been recruiting. Uh, look at how talented the two deep was, even as you get past the starters last year. And so you're probably right. It probably just is is fair to accept that this is going to be a top five team again this year. You stopped me in, in my tracks with one of those comments because you mentioned Nick Saban's. You said he was seven and six in his first season at Alabama. I forgot that. I just can't imagine Alabama losing six games in a season. I mean, that's maybe three seasons. But, uh, but yeah, that his his record over time is is just unbelievable, unmatched. And uh, Kirby's chasing him now. We'll see how that works out. But I, I, I just think there's still one, two. I think those two teams, those two programs, not teams, programs are just above everybody else right now. And there could be a, a mad scramble for second place in both divisions, but I just don't see that scramble reaching the top. Before we get into our final talking point, just want to take a moment here and say if you appreciate the team chemistry we have here on this podcast, uh, would appreciate it if you take a moment to, uh, to subscribe or follow. That way you will not miss an episode. And if you like what you hear on SEC Football Unfiltered, go ahead and give us a rating or review. Those ratings and reviews help us get in front of more listeners. You mentioned our team chemistry, and I, and I think it's significant that you pointed that out because going back to when we first started the podcast, I really had questions about our team chemistry, and I kind of thought you wanted to show you were the smartest guy in the room on all podcasts, and I think the team chemistry wasn't what it needed to be in that first year, but now it's it's completely different, and we're sort of like, brothers or or maybe i'm kind of that older uncle of yours uh, I, don't know, I guess brothers wouldn't be appropriate with the age difference 
Yeah, maybe that great uncle who lives down the street and I stop in once a week just to make sure he's still with us. Yeah, and maybe, you know, maybe pay buy you a meal or something. You know how yeah. you become the smartest guy in the room, John? How's that? You, you just control the size of the room. <laughs> you know, if you're hanging out in a broom closet, you're most likely to be the smartest guy in the room. So, so Jeremy Pruitt's office should have been a broom closet in yeah. Tennessee. Yeah, and as you've okay. written before, John, they would have been better off maybe giving Casey Pruitt a an office at Tennessee because she was the one, at least according to the NCAA's notice of allegations, that was that was doing some of this wheeling and dealing, the impermissible benefits that were occurring under Jeremy Pruitt's regime. And now as Tennessee faces uh, that NCAA investigation. But you know who was piling on last week, John? It's just... Boy, if you would have told me that one of the SEC coaches was going to pile on Tennessee and going to needle the Vols at all this, I probably would have predicted Eli slash Elijah Drinkwitz would have been the man because Drinkwitz is he's sort of like Jimbo Fisher in that he's he's kind of the hero of of the preseason. You know how his teams performed during the year. It was our it was it was nice in year one. They exceeded expectations. Year two, Missouri kind of flopped. Let's call it what it is, but but there he is again in the preseason, turning phrases. I mentioned his club med quote. Well, that was that was an appetizer as compared to what he said uh, during a recent interview on the Jim Rome show. He was discussing the situation at Tennessee, and Drinkwitz said, "Quote: Personally, I've got to question my wife's commitment to winning. I don't know how much if she's committed, if she's not engaging in some of these things. I didn't know that was fair play." That was very Drinkwitz like to uh, to find somebody else who's maybe down a little bit more than than the Missouri Tigers are right now, at, at least maybe not program wise, but dealing with with some of these NCAA allegations and and doing a little needling there. But it got me to thinking, John, beyond the comments, what do you think the attributes are of an ideal coach's spouse? Do they need to be out there brokering deals like Casey Pruitt, or you got something else in? in mind here and um were you impressed to see casey pruitt's name littered throughout that ncaa report yeah turn my head i was dazzled by it i've never seen this in the history of college football before and i've seen a lot of stuff but i never expect a wife to get that involved and i give her all the credit in the world i mean we saw what was happening with jeremy pruitt I mean, we saw this wasn't going to be one of the SEC's great ascent stories. This was going to be this look. This was troublesome, and I think I think Casey Pruitt recognized that right right along. He said, "I I can't just host recruits' families on official visits. I can't just prepare a a nice meal for a, a team barbecue or team dinner at the house sometimes." I can't just be supportive. I need to really get involved here in what she did. And I commend her for that because maybe if, if the team was uh, soaring, if the program was soaring, she could sit back and assume a more traditional role for a coach's wife. But no, I think she, she read the tea leaves and saw, saw dire things coming. And she got involved, and I give her a lot of credit for that. 
Well, I think one of the best attributes is in a spouse is someone who knows you inside and out. And I think it's very clear here. Casey Pruitt knows her man, and she knows this this guy might not be the brightest bulb in the room. If he's going to have a long, successful tenure here at Tennessee, which he did not, he might need a little help uh, from his better half here. So that's that's a sign of a of a strong marriage, I think. Is some is is a case where your spouse knows knows you knows you through and through, and knows where you might need a, a helping hand, even where maybe you didn't know it yourself. I go back to the first game of the Jeremy Pruitt era in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. It was right before the game, and I saw the uh, media relations person came in, and 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 Casey Pruitt was with him and and I didn't think too much about it at the time. It was the first game in a new program. So she looked, she looked really pale to me now looking back at that and, and, and how things transpired. And I think maybe she knew where this thing was headed. John there, you're on marriage number two. Is that correct? Yeah, it's second one. Yeah. It's second, second one. Okay, and of course we yeah. think the the world of Melinda here on on the podcast. I mean, of course, yeah, salt of the earth that. and sure, all yeah. all that good stuff. But in your your multiple marriages here and in, in your experienced ways, would you say you've you've learned anything here that maybe you could advice you could share for any football coaches maybe that are looking for a, a spouse? You know, a lot of these guys are are married around the league, but maybe, maybe if someone's in need of a, of a spouse, anything you can, any wisdom you could share from, from your many years of, of marriage and, and, and also just covering college football and covering coaches' wives like Casey Pruitt. Well, I think the main thing, and, and this is a, this is a revelation to me and I owe it strictly to Casey Pruitt. And I think it applies to anybody is as a wife, don't get pigeonholed as to what your role, what you should be. You have to adapt, adjust to how the marriage is going. And you maybe need to step into a different role. Don't be afraid to do that. Step outside your comfort zone. And I think Casey Pruitt did that. Uh, it didn't work out well, but that doesn't mean it, it wouldn't. By the way, I had a, one of my best friends who's on his fourth marriage was at, at, at another wedding of, of a friend. And he noticed up ahead of him, he noticed in the, in the pew, he said, you know, that's, that's my second wife up there. And he turned his fourth wife and said, uh, I just want to let you know, that's, that's my second wife's up there. And his fourth wife said, uh, what's her name? Pause. He said, uh, let me get back to you on that. That's a bad it, sign. That Well, no, it came to him later, but they weren't married that long. And when you had four wives, it, it kind of gets blurred. Well, we're just one big happy family here on the podcast, John. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. We'll try to do it better then. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.